From the heartland of America and the gateway to the West, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. This is Coast to Coast AM. Later tonight, the psychic world. Here's what's happening. The five U.S. prisoners released by Iran as part of a controversial prisoner swap have arrived in Doha, Qatar, to begin their journey back to America where one says he's eager to visit an Apple store to find out what the latest phones are after eight years behind bars. The price of their freedom was $6 billion in frozen funds the U.S. seized from Iran back in 2018, and now claims will be used for humanitarian purposes only, they say. Five Iranians who were in U.S. custody are now free. U.S. Federal Reserve officials have tentatively embraced the possibility they can squelch inflation without a recession. Meet this week with the auto workers' strike, a possible federal government shutdown, and a student loan squeeze on consumers posing new risks to that best-case outcome there. Clorox is warning the wide-scale cyber attack has got them. It endured last month as causing product availability issues and will have a material impact on its first quarter earnings. The California-based company's earnings are projected to take a hit due to the order processing delays and elevated level of product outages related to the attack. The company is still trying to determine the full extent of the financial and business impact of the attack. Lauren Weinstein, our expert on the Internet, with us here. Lauren, why would somebody want to attack Clorox, for crying out loud? Just follow the money. Just follow the money. Yeah, we have a couple of new examples now of cyber attacks on industries, and there's apparently not really much new about these, but this serves to remind us once again that there are corporate systems still out there that remain vulnerable to these cyber attacks, and sometimes from attack vectors that we've heard of before, sometimes many times before. So from what I've read, the Clorox situation, as you noted, was not really related to production per se, but rather to their information systems. And when you have to shut those down because of cyber attacks, because you want to clean them out, uh, that often means reverting to manual ordering systems, which can be very slow and time-consuming compared with the usual largely automatic systems. And that, of course, can create delivery bottlenecks. And typically getting back onto the automated systems can be very slow going because it has to be done very carefully to avoid causing new problems along the way. And, And meanwhile, in Las Vegas, there reportedly has been continuing cleanup there from casino cyber attacks that messed up some information systems in that city, So, for example, reportedly some slot machine payments uh, had to be done manually, and it's been quite a mess there as well. Now, as usual, we don't have a lot of information on the details of any of these attacks at this point, but the lion's share of such attacks in general are tied to phishing emails or social engineering, for example, via phone calls, that try one way or another to get employees of the firms or sometimes the employees of associated third-party vendors that have access to those systems to hand over credentials for access to corporate accounts. And that's how attackers get in initially, and from there on many of these networks, they can pretty much run amok for days, weeks, months, sometimes even longer. Now, there are well-known ways to help prevent this. There are methods for configuring networks where individual resources are much better protected, even if an employee's credentials are compromised. And as we've discussed before, two-factor authentication provides a major layer of additional protection, with the understanding that some two-factor systems can still be compromised with enough work by the attacker, though FIDO security keys are generally considered to be the best two-factor system that's the most secure against credentials being hijacked. But again, 
these are general statements, not statements related to the specific cases being discussed tonight, because we don't have enough information about these specific cases right now. But it's really obvious, and it's been obvious for a long time now, that there's quite a ways to go in this area, and we can expect to hear about more cases very much like these probably for quite some time yet to come. And there's a UPS phishing scam out there now too, Lauren, where they send you an email saying we can't find your house or your delivery. Please click all this stuff. Yeah, there's 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 various scams related to all the uh, all the delivery carriers. I mean, uh, and sometimes when you when you look at them closely, they're they're you know fairly crude. They're misspelled or they've got funny punctuation and such. And the interesting thing is that a lot of those are specifically designed to look like they're full of mistakes because they're trying to find people who will miss those mistakes because the attackers feel that those are probably the people that will be the most likely to respond to the attack. So there's, you know, all of this is going on all, all the time, and, and frankly, I don't see it having really reduced at all for years now. It just keeps going and going and going. It's an amazing world we're living in. Thanks, Lauren. Having well-behaved kids is often a concern for parents, but not all adults in every country actually think it's one of the most important things. Overall, adults in the U.S. are least likely to say their kids are having good manners is an especially important quality. Just 52% of them said so back in 2017, according to a report just released. This makes the U.S. the country least likely of the 24 countries surveyed in recent years to believe good manners are crucial for kids. People should try to meditate for around 45 minutes every day to cut stress-related high blood pressure, according to new guidelines. Other tips from the International Society of Hypertension include taking time out to listen to music, doing yoga, and practicing mindfulness. An investigator who presented non-human bodies to Mexico's Congress has insisted he did absolutely nothing wrong as Peru has now launched a criminal probe into how the alleged aliens left the country. Journalist and UFO enthusiast and Coast guest Jaime Masson unveiled two corpses alongside forensic scientists last week in what he described as a watershed moment. He has suggested that the mummified bodies, which he claims to be a thousand years old, are one of the most important discoveries in human history. What else is going on in the skies these days? Let's check in with Stephen Cates, Dr. Sky. Hi, Stephen. Hi there, George. Exciting stories as always. We begin with deep space. Life-supporting molecules, George, have been allegedly found on an exoplanet known as K2-18b. What's that? 120 light years from the Earth, all this courtesy of the James Webb Telescope, as it detected what appears to be an eight-times-sized planet from the Earth, in other words, eight times larger, around the red dwarf star. But here's the story. It also detected a carbon-rich atmosphere with a molecule that sustains life on Earth known as dimethyl sulfide. That's produced by plankton in the oceans. But, George, planets like this are known simply as hycyons. That's a short term for oceans, hydrogen, and organic molecules. The story continues to unfold as scientists look for total confirmation. We go to the sun. Solar cycle 25 is heating up faster than predicted. Astronomers now, George, are seeing the rapid rise in solar activity and tell us that this solar cycle 25 may peak earlier than first thought. Solar cycle 25 began back on 2019, and we may now know, of course, that this may peak in late 2024 instead of 2025. But as of January 2023, solar cycle 25 was more intense than the previous solar cycle, cycle 24, with 12% more sunspots 
and obviously the best is yet to come. We go to the moon. Some moonquakes have been detected from the Apollo 17 lander known as Challenger. What's that all about? Moonquakes are not new. But George's recent analysis of moonquakes reveals that these quakes detected from the Apollo 17 lunar lander, how do they begin? Or how do they start? As the heat of the sun flexes the metal on the lander, which is known as Challenger, this was detected by lunar quake monitors, which were left on the moon in the 1970s. But the big story of the week is this, in my opinion. OSIRIS-REx, the payload from asteroid Bennu, is due to return to the Earth on September the 23rd at 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time in the Utah Test and Training Range near Dugway, Utah. It'll be traveling, that is, the capsule, at 27,000 miles per hour, hitting temperatures like most reentry vehicles of some 5,000 degrees. One parachute opens at 102,000 feet above the Earth, and then another chute slows the spacecraft down from its incredible speeds to about 10 miles per hour to soft land in the desert. It all sounds like science fiction, but those precious particles from Bennu will be examined. Wrap it up with the live sky. Here's what's going on, and people can see it. The moon naturally grows as a crescent in the southwest sky at sunset. Comet Nishimura, George, past the sun that's heading out of the solar system and obviously away from the northern hemisphere. But autumn begins. That happens as we move on to Saturday morning, 2.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. But the next full moon, or the full moon that occurs closest to the autumnal equinox, is known as the harvest moon. But this year, we get to see the full super harvest moon on the 29th, the last of the super moons of 2023. Always more information at theskylive.com. We have emails. We love those. Show at gmail.com. We say it, we mean it, and we're proud to say it. Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. Simply, I'm your navigator on the highway to the heavens. Thank you, George. Thank you, Dr. Sky. We'll talk to you next week. Up next, Sir Charles Schultz III joins us as we continue talking about Mars anomalies. He's one of the best, and if you have a moment, get up to the coasttocoastam.com website. In the highlight reel, Webmaster Lex has posted some images that Sir Charles has sent to us, amazing things that you'll find on Mars. He's next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. We've got a great program for you tonight. Sir Charles Schultz worked at Martin Marietta Aerospace for 10 years on weapon systems and computer-based automated test equipment, he wrote the nuclear EMP test software for the Pershing-2 missile system, worked on the Patriot systems, the Copperhead tank killer, and the advanced attack helicopter systems. Sir Charles has performed research under grant on nuclear fusion, was knighted and received a long-term grant for his present research in robotics and artificial intelligence. Sir Charles, my friend, welcome back. How have you been? Oh, I've been fantastic, George, and it's always great to do a show with you. Artificial intelligence. What do you think of Chat GPT? You know, they had some interesting problems with it just recently, and it seemed obvious to me what it might be. Uh, they had one of the versions of it that blew up after a while, refused to answer people, or made answers up that were obviously wrong. There's a problem with neural networks. If you feed it too much information to learn, it literally destroys what it already knows, and the threshold is about 16%. Is it going to backfire on us? What's that? Will it backfire on us? Oh, it certainly can. And the problem is they don't have the resilience that, for instance, the human brain has. They're still just machines as regard, you know, the, the brain is very flexible and can repair itself in many ways. And a, a program like that doesn't know where to even begin. So it's a vulnerability. 
Does artificial intelligence for Charles have the ability to consider things and weigh options like a human brain does? Well, it certainly can, but the way it operates internally is often quite different from what the human brain does. And so it's going to have failure mechanisms that we might not recognize right away. Um, There are a lot of things that you can do with artificial intelligence and realize that most AI systems are not cognizant. They are generally tools for filtering data, finding patterns, and locating trends, sorting things out. Um, They aren't things you can sit down and have a chat with. So something like ChatGPT is uh, more of an anomaly. It's not the usual sort of AI that you're willing to, you're ready to encounter in the uh, regular use in the world. Let's go to Mars for a moment. How'd you get interested in that planet? Well, you know, being the most Earth-like planet and having some mysteries, it was something that always caught my interest, and I always felt that there would be some fascinating things to discover there. And and there have been. It's amazing what we've found within recent years, you know. We have so many images that at this point, it's it's impossible for them to deny that what we have are fossils. And uh, some of the images I sent you tonight, for instance. Uh, oh, they're wow. amazing. They are amazing. We've got actual crinoids, sea urchin shells, um, things that you look at, and there's just no way you can deny it. And, you know, if the people at NASA are not seeing these things, then they aren't qualified to do the job. And if they do see them and they're not talking about it, then, you know, I'm pretty sure that uh, it destroys your trust in an organization that's more bent on getting funding and giving us the answers we paid for. Do you think Mars was much like Earth-like at its point? Well, not terribly. I mean, it would have always had very thin atmosphere, and it doesn't have the ability to replenish its oceans and its atmosphere. The Earth does because of continued volcanic activity, but the core of Mars is small, and it's probably pretty much burned out. But it was capable of supporting life in oceans because inside the water, gases like oxygen and CO2 still dissolve and can be respired, by organisms that live there. As long as you don't come out into the very thin atmosphere, you'd be just fine. Tell us some of these new discoveries you've made, and how did you find them? Well, I've constantly, wow, it's been almost 20 years now, George, since my initial discoveries, and I always analyze the new data. I go through everything with a fine-tooth comb, and some things just pop right out at you. Um, The first image on the site is a crinoid, which is uh, on Earth. We often call them feather stars, and they are plant-looking organisms that are actually animals with a skeleton. The Sol 544 crinoid, if you look at it, you can actually see the segments of the stem and the features on the calyx. And calyx is like the head of it or the body of it. Um, this thing is available in, in uh, 3D as well. So, you know, it's not an illusion. It's an actual solid object. Um, and if you look at the Curiosity picture from 1409, you literally can see the shell of a sea urchin sticking out of the mud. Um, It has rows of identical pores, it has two colors, and it's striped. It looks like a piece of fabric. Um, There is no geological process that would produce this, particularly not the pores. It's definitely a marine shell of an organism, and sea urchin is the only thing that fills the bill. Um, If you go down to the next uh, picture, and I I hope people on the site are uh, are on your site following along, I've got an earthly sea urchin broken open, and you can compare the shell to what's on the ground here. Um, you have literally the shell of a broken fossilized urchin, and the structure in the middle is something called Aristotle's lantern. A sea urchin has teeth, and to move it, it doesn't have a skeleton like we do, but it does have particles inside of, uh, I should say, limbs of a sort that move the teeth 
from muscle tissue, and the one on Mars literally has that structure inside it. And then I found about six of these that are identical and all have that structure in the middle of them. So geology does not produce identical eroded forms. Uh, and the fourth picture that you posted, which is uh, an amazing one, was a Saul 1095 Curiosity. There is an imprint on the rock, and when I went to that picture, I saw it immediately. You zoom in, and, and I've enhanced the contrast only so you can see this. There is literally a circular thing. looks almost like a coin. It is the imprint of a sea urchin, and it has left a white granular circle, and in the middle is the mouth of the urchin printed in and radial lines extending out from it. And there's nothing else that would do that other than a sea urchin. So there are four pictures right there that I would love it if NASA would even try to debate this. I mean, there's no doubt that these are remains of organisms, which raises my big concern, which we've talked about. They're planning on bringing back samples within a couple of years. They've mm -hmm. already been collecting them with curiosity, uh, not curiosity, but uh, perseverance. And the problem is any biosphere has microbes. And if they bring these samples back, they run the risk of, of exposing all of us to organisms of unknown types, and we would have no resistance to that. And so anybody who would think of doing such a thing is, is a fool. There have been some major movies about that disaster occurring, has there? Oh, absolutely. And we don't need to be doing this. We're not in a position to handle uh, alien biological material safely. I mean, look at the... Uh, the COVID business we've been going through. Oh, my God. And yeah. Do you trust them to handle a sample from, you know, another planet that has organisms of unknown qualities? How old do you think those artifacts might be? You know, uh, many of them could be many thousands of years old, but there's an interesting thing. Uh, the shell of the urchin with the pores, uh, that one looks like it is not fossilized. Um, and that really is interesting because they always say, well, these features you see on the surface are millions or billions of years old. That's absolutely false. They made three major, problem, I should say, mistakes in gauging whether water is present and the age of those features. Um, I have on my site a short video that's made of consecutive frames over about a 90-day period, and it shows the sand moving in the same spot of the soil, and it shows a small crevice opening in the soil sucking in sand and swallowing some small pebbles. Now, that's interesting because what caused the void, like a little sinkhole, to open up? And the only answer that makes sense is the water moving under the surface. And, of course, you know, they deny that there's water moving and there's water present. Uh, actually, they made a major, major flaw that I need to explain. And you know, what, George, what causes air pressure on the Earth? Are you aware of that? Air Why pressure? That? Yeah, what causes air pressure? Is it just the air around us, or, or what causes it to happen? And the answer is actually very simple. If you went out and drew a square on the ground, a one-inch square, and imagine that extending from the ground all the way to the top of the atmosphere, to the edge of space, all the gas in there, all the air in that column, if you could place it on a scale, would weigh 14.7 pounds. You know, that's the air pressure. Air pressure is the result of gravity. I was just going to say gravity. Absolutely. Well, on Mars, the gravity is 38%. So if we could somehow transport that column from Earth to Mars, the air would expand slightly. If we could keep it in the column, it would raise its height slightly. But 
the pressure you measure would only be 38% as much. It'd be about five pounds, but it's still got the same number of gas molecules. Sir Charles, we're going to take a quick break and come back and chat more about your work on Mars right here on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with Sir Charles Schultz III. We'll take calls with Sir Charles next hour. Sir Charles, why isn't NASA jumping for joy with photos like what you've supplied us? Well, that's an amazing question and one I've been scratching my head for a couple of decades over. And it's, you know, they keep claiming they're looking for life in space, and they keep saying that. But do you realize the last time they sent a life-detecting package anywhere was a launch in 1975? That was 48 years ago. And that was the uh, Viking 1 and Viking 2 packages from Dr. Gil Levin. They claim they're looking for life. If I'm building a house or if I'm looking for something, I get my best tools out to do the job. And if they're not sending their best tools, like a life-detecting package, they're not looking. It's that simple. What other mistakes has NASA made out there? Well, this atmospheric thing I was explaining, remember a couple years back they said that the relative humidity in the Martian atmosphere was 10 times higher than theory predicted. Well, this is why. The, the atmosphere is literally over two and a half times thicker than pressure would indicate, and water itself is making up a part, a part of that atmosphere. And, and so what this does, we see the rate of erosion, we can see the sand moving, we can see things changing. They're absolutely wrong about the features. They're not billions of years old. They're, in some cases, only a couple of years old. If you have features as fresh as the ones we see, and the rate of erosion is as rapid as we can see and measure, then those features have to be new, and that means water is doing it now, not a 1,000 years ago. And in fact, there is a field of glaciers near the equator in Meridiani Planum that is only 15 million years old. Well, that says that there had to be a body of water of huge size to make a field of glaciers. Paint a picture of what you think Mars looked like at its high point. At its high point... It probably still had extremely thin air, probably 30 to 40 millibars, you know, um, maybe you know, like 3 or 4% of what we have. But its oceans would have been loaded with organisms. And from what we can see, they aren't particularly complex organisms, something similar to what we had on Earth two or 300 million years ago. Nevertheless, it would have been a rich biosphere. And you can see that the planet is covered with rust. Well, that was done on Earth by something called the Great Rusting Event. There was biology in action. Um, you would have seen oceans loaded with life. The, the rest of the planet may or may not have had other life. I have no evidence of that. I can only go on what I've found. But it would have been a fascinating place to visit. And, you know, trilobites, crinoids, uh, sea urchins, all sorts of things that would fascinate anybody who's interested in life and organisms in general. And it tells us that life would be common all throughout the universe, I mean, everywhere. For life to happen here at Earth, for example, the way it has evolved with us and everything else, did it have to be letter perfect where everything was in place? Oh, absolutely not. You see, life is resilient, and we can have horrible environments that you or I could never live in, and yet organisms can make it just fine. And the fact is, most of the worlds in the universe will have environments that we could not survive but would still be able to support life. I mean, look at what lives inside nearly airless cave systems here on the Earth. Things that live in there don't need much oxygen or any at all in some cases, and they do just fine. Uh, there are bacteria, in fact, 
the largest mass of life on Earth has been figured to be the bacteria that live in the rock under our feet. And they're anaerobic. They don't need oxygen. They eat petroleum and minerals, and they live there. They outweigh all of the life in the oceans, all the life on the land. So it's quite possible there will be worlds we look at that look like an airless rock. And in their interior, there would be species of bacteria and microbes and small organisms that we wouldn't recognize unless we cracked the rocks open and found them. So, Charles, there's one of the strangest questions you'll ever get. You ready? Absolutely. Why do we even breathe? Why do we have to breathe? We breathe in and out. We breathe in oxygen. We breathe out carbon dioxide. What's it all about? Well, it's pretty simple. In order to get energy from the fuel, the food that we eat, we have to break it down. And oxygen is an extremely reactive chemical that makes that process happen. Um, Oxygen is used to break down the sugars and the other things that we eat, and that's the battery power for our cells. And there are little elements in the cells called mitochondria that perform that process of respiration. Plants, on the other hand, take sunlight, the energy of light, and carbon dioxide and build their tissue literally out of air and water. And in the process, they produce the oxygen, which was a potentially very toxic waste in the past. In fact, um, the bacteria that fixed the iron, the iron deposits, literally killed themselves off on numerous occasions by poisoning the atmosphere of that oxygen that that we value so much. And we can see stripes in the uh, iron deposits that where the organisms built up the iron, died from the oxygen poisoning, then recovered and did it again. And it was only the fact that the rocks on our earth were weathering and using that oxygen that they were able to recover it all. (laughs) It is really remarkable, though, how the human body was put together. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many details in there that we still have no clue about and we're still discovering. With, With the anomalies in the pictures you've shown us so far, what do you think might be out there on Mars or once was? Well, it would not surprise me if there were things in more or less a state of hibernation. I think everybody is is familiar with brine shrimp and recently the triops, primitive shrimp with three eyes, that showed up at the Burning Man in the mud of the desert. Many organisms have the ability to lay eggs that are desiccated and can remain in a static state for over a century in some cases. And then at the first sign of water, they hatch, come out, develop very rapidly, lay more eggs, and then when it dries up, they're ready for the next round. I would not be in the very least surprised if the same thing were true on Mars. So we would expect to find life that might survive right now in cave environments or sheltered environments underground. We know there's a water table. We can see the water oozing out of the ground and in some cases making huge streaks. Um, so there has to be water, and there's a lot of brine in it in most of the areas. But I would expect there are many, many organisms still alive in that biosphere. What's going on with Mars's moons? All right, so both of the moons are known to be captured asteroids. And if you look at the pictures that have been sent back, they show cracks in their structure. They're getting closer to the planet slowly over time, and they're fracturing. And it looks like there's an estimate of between 5 and 10 million years when one of them may crash into the surface, which is interesting because we know that Mars, being close to the asteroid belt, gets a lot of impacts on its surface already. So, you know, there are two asteroids that got captured by the planet. Does Mars basically help block us? Well, not really. Jupiter does that job. Mars is just as much a target as we are. But there's one major difference. 
On Earth, we had this huge dinosaur killer, and we had a number of events that could have wiped out all life on Earth. But on Mars, even if we hit with one of that size, the impact would be far, far less energetic because it only has 38% of our gravity. So you wouldn't worry so much about a dinosaur killer type asteroid hitting Mars as you would the Earth. Truly remarkable. It really is. What other countries are doing their thing with Mars? Well, a number of countries are sending spacecraft. Uh, Of course, we all heard about India landing um, a spacecraft on the poles of the moon just recently. And they had sent a craft to orbit Mars um, a couple of years back. Now, Mars has, you know, jokingly been called the only planet we know populated solely by robots. (laughs) Uh, There are so many landers all over the planet, but many people are now taking a real interest in it. And the only thing that slows us down from getting any real exploration done at this point is the state of the world economy. Um, People are really turned away from a lot of the exploration right now because the sheer cost of doing some of these projects is going through the roof, and that's not good for us. We need more science and more information. How come the Russians have kind of backed off? I think that they don't really see that there's a profit to be had in exploring Mars any further. They've had a number of unsuccessful landers. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a question that raises some interesting points in my mind, but I think that the Russians tend to be much more pragmatic about their research projects. Back when we were trying to get to the moon, it was a big, you know, it was a big, uh, well, it was a prestige issue getting there. And since it didn't work out for them, you know, man, it's an expensive process that doesn't pay off well. And at the time, they really didn't embrace capitalism, the ability to make money on what they'd done. Today, that may be very different, but they're embroiled in possibly a world war. We don't know where that's going to go. I think that they have bigger issues on their plate right now than exploring Mars, to be honest. If you were running NASA right now, Sir Charles, what would you be doing? Wow. You know, the first thing I would be doing is looking at getting power systems in orbit around our planet. Uh, NASA is basically a research organization, but they're also a transport organization. That was what they were designed to do, get things off the planet. We should be orbiting power stations, solar power stations, around our planet right now and getting some of the sunlight that's free out in space down to the ground into our power grid. We could eliminate any issues concerning greenhouse changes in our environment. And trust me, there's a lot more going on than that. Uh, The solar cycle, for instance, itself right now, the more sunspots we have, the hotter our environment becomes for short periods of time. And the cooler it is, uh, when there's no sunspots, our planet cools off slightly. And and in fact, there was a period uh, called the Maunder Minimum that occurred a number of years back and caused what they called the Little Ice Age. So sunspots have a direct influence on our uh, climate. But, But as for running NASA... I would definitely send life-detecting packages. I would definitely get orbital power stations up, and I'd get a, present, uh, a, a permanent presence established on the moon right away because it's a, the halfway point to anywhere in the solar system. I was asked uh, tonight by Mo Kelly, who hosts a uh, talk show on KFI, our Los Angeles affiliate, and uh, he said, do you think we will have a man on Mars within 20 years? And I said, absolutely. What about you? I do believe that. I mean, look how well Elon Musk's research is going. He is not afraid to fail. He does the things that NASA won't do, and he continues to work in the face of whatever difficulties he faces. I mean, if you consider, when he started, 
He spent five years developing the first new liquid fuel rocket engine, and he did it. And he did it on the same amount of money that NASA spends in 11 days. So <laughs> you, yeah, when you look at the power of independent uh, commercial research, you know, you have to say, hands down, it is far, far more effective than any government agency can ever be. I mean, the bloat and the overhead in any government agency just, just kills them at the outset. How did Bezos and Musk get so far so fast when it took, you know, and it's still taken some other countries years to get to even them close to where we are? Did, they, did he hire former NASA technology and people like that? There actually were a number of rocket scientists he hired, but the, the real issue here is they're not afraid to fail. They know that it can be done, and they know basically what it takes. And when you want to achieve something and you've got all the will in the world to do it, you're going to find a way to do it. And both of them want to get us off the planet. I mean, think about it. The big goal here is to make humanity unkillable, to get us out to other worlds, to find resources to help us stabilize everything. But, you know... As well-intentioned as that may be, the real problems that we face are not technical. They're evil. I mean, to be honest, we know how to fix every planet, every problem on our planet. We know how to clean the oceans. We know how to end pollution. We know how to get energy. We know how to break down waste products. We know how to, we know how to fix all this stuff, and we're not doing it. And that can only be by design. Were most of the artifacts in the pictures you sent us underwater at some time in Mars's existence? Yes, absolutely. They're all located either in Meridiani Planum or in, uh, you know, for instance, where, um, oh gosh, Gale Crater, uh, where um, Curiosity is located. Mm -hmm. And Curiosity has been an exceptionally wonderful trove of artifacts and fossils for me. Um, I found some amazing stuff going through that. Uh, I have just barely begun to get a dent on Perseverance rover. There's been so much data to process. But now I have created those virtual galleries, and people that go to my site will be able to see 12 specific galleries with all sorts of fossils and other information in there. And, in fact, I'm going to start a Zoom conversation like every Wednesday night, 7 Central. Just come to my site, click in, and I'll conduct people through live through the galleries. Cool. Uh, go to the Schultz Laboratory site, and we will have every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central, come in and I'll personally conduct people through the galleries and the fossils. Sir Charles, how many functional rovers are operating on Mars right now? Let's see. Wow, let's see. I think I know of three. Um, and they've been doing it well, for years, time. right? Yes, they have. Now, remember that the... Both Spirit and Opportunity died a long time back. They landed in 2000, early 2004. Uh, they're out of service, and they've been out of service for uh, many years. But Perseverance is operating and collecting samples for their return mission, and Curiosity is operating and flying the small um, – well, let's see, uh, Perseverance is flying the helicopter. Curiosity is getting some amazing sample um, drilling uh, holes, taking uh, measurements, and getting some astounding um, some pictures. Now, the Chinese had the, their rover on Mars. I think it has gone silent, if I'm not mistaken. It was functioning up until a couple of months ago, if I'm not mistaken on that. Uh, what drives their power? Solar? 
In the case of our rovers, we use what's known as an RTG, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. It's a nuclear battery. Um, some of them have solar cells. Some of them have nuclear cells. And the nuclear cell is basically just a heat generator, and it's surrounded by effectively thermocouples that generate current. But they're, they're more advanced than that. Um, pellets of plutonium literally are breaking down and generating heat, and that heat source is driving what's known as thermovoltaic cells, cells that make uh, electrical power not from light but from heat. And so if you look at the pictures of uh, Curiosity and Perseverance, you will see they got that radioisotope cell on them. And the earlier ones had uh, photovoltaic panels, solar panels. Sir Charles' website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com. He's got a couple books out, including, of course, A Fossil's Hunter's Guide to Mars. And how do you pronounce your other one? Ah, Oniros. That's a science fiction novel, and I'm, I'm working with some people to see if we can't get that turned into a movie. I think people would really enjoy that. It's about life in the universe and why it's silent. Um, <laughs> one of my few attempts to do <laughs> a story. I love it. Let's take calls with you when we come back.